So if I'm understanding that the access that the internet gives to getting your hands on something doesn't necessarily provide the access of understanding conceptually what you have in your hands. Absolutely okay. not. Okay. Right. It's information. So how do you how do you teach or how do you allow people to learn that part? I mean that you know it's not just getting your hands on it but what you do with it. And I think that this there's this enormous gap that I think that CCL is in part and others are trying to, to bridge of between here's something that we have and we know what it is and there's data and information, but what do we do with it? Right. I think is, is the big gap. So that in some ways they say knowledge to practice gap, evidence to practice gap, the, the know to do gap. How do we allow, how do we support both forms of access? You know, that's, okay. that's, 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 that's improving. You, look, let me tell you, if, sure. if you, if you, as I do, had an opportunity to work with an expert in information retrieval, we don't have very good access to, just because you know a little bit about Googling, well, any information retrieval expert will tell you that, yeah, Google's okay. But here are all the gaps in what Google is able to do. No, we're not doing a good job even at retrieving information. Okay. Definitely not doing a good job at that. About learning how to learn? Well, you're asking actually a very sophisticated question about the psychology of, of learning and motivation. Currently, we're focusing on a lot of student-centered approaches to uh, learning where we give learners a lot more responsibility and autonomy for process of learning and we're developing more and more strategies for helping to scaffold that that learning so I, I really can't in just a moment or two of this interview go into all of the processes of the student student-centered learning the set of principles that I like best because they're evidence-based which are student-centered, are actually on the subsection of the American Psychological Association's uh, website. There's a set of 14 learner-centered uh, principles, and I think those provide a good glimpse into how information should be structured so we create good lifelong learners. But I, I don't think lifelong learning, like any other form of learning, happens by by accident. That's why we have schools and why we have pedagogues to help scaffold learners along. Curiosity alone is not sufficient. What's the long-term effects of not doing this very well? Well, how about uh, we, we look at the state of learning in Canada right now? Good, I'm you know, hoping you would go there. Uh, CCL's, <laughs> CCL's latest port, OECD's uh, and, the, and Stats Canada's latest uh, analyses uh, you know all point to the same thing that we're doing okay conference board of canada uh, reports point to the same thing we're doing okay but okay is far from good far from ideal we have a dramatically high percentage of uh, high school graduates graduating without functional levels of numeracy literacy and scientific uh, reasoning in some urban areas in some rural settings those rates are 30 40 to 50 percent of the graduates totally unacceptable what's the consequence on things like the economy I think that Stats Canada last year issued one of the most important reports about the link between education the uh, GDP gross, gross domestic product they said that if we increase the literacy rate in Canada 
1% per year, it's worth something on the order of, I think this number is, $18 billion. A year? A year. And what are we investing in improving literacy now? The government of Canada decided to discontinue some of its adult literacy uh, programs. I mean, we invest in literacy in the form of, um, of our, the amount that we invest in schooling. Are we being successful in terms of the, that triumvirate of skills, literacy skills, numeracy skills, scientific reasoning skills, and let's add to that lifelong learning skills? Not as much as we should be. So we need to invest more to put ourselves in a, in a better position. And we need to develop much more effective strategies for taking what we learn, creating tools and supports and networks so that there is good dialogue and exchange. Now I'm going to ask a naive question, and let's assume that the decisions, <laughs> no, you're not. Well, let's assume that the the, the cutbacks on, on the literacy programs and literacy infrastructure in Canada was based on evidence. Why, you know, what is the alternate evidence that would support cutting it back? If if you're saying that an increase in literacy leads to greater GD production as measured by GDP, right? I mean, you know, what happened? You know, what was the evidence that went went into making of that decision? I can't answer that, Peter. I cannot answer why. I, I will only tell you that one that one jurisdiction that is using evidence as the basis of policy is the United Kingdom, where virtually all offices of the uh, of the government, when new policy statements are or new policy initiatives are undertaken, that they must include in that policy statement the evidence in support of the change. And we don't do that in Canada. I don't believe we do that. I mean, I don't want to call myself a policy expert because I am not. Right. Um, but I don't believe that happens, or it doesn't happen to the extent that it happens in other uh, uh, jurisdictions. Right. So let's use the example of policymaking in the UK, where the evidence actually is transparently put forward as part of the decision-making process. What do you see to be the benefits of that, of including evidence in the decision-making and policy-making process? Well, it was very interesting. I went to a uh, talk last year by uh, Ian Chalmers. Ian Chalmers had very much to do with the formation of the uh, Cochrane Collaboration, named after Archie Cochrane. Ian was talking about the moral and ethical responsibility that scientists, policymakers, and politicians had to use evidence. I thought that was quite an inspirational, radical, um, but very true message. Evidence as a moral obligation. Yes. But that makes sense in healthcare. I mean, people die in healthcare. I mean, um, can, can you say that, that the same kind of dramatic consequences would happen if we don't use it in, in education or in women's studies or in politics or in economics? I mean, People aren't dying because of economics, but they're being um, they're being imprisoned by their failure to develop a set of essential skills. So let's look at what the data has to say about lack of literacy skills, lack of educational skills, and job attainment, marital difficulties, criminal difficulties, 
I mean, you name it. You go across the spectrum of indicators of problematic or successful life, and there's a link between literacy narrowly and educational success generally and well-being, well-being. The link between education and well-being and health is very, very strong. I think I think areas of education, and of course now I'm speaking more about in defense of my own field of inquiry, but I think the value of education to society is as a preventative, as a lifelong thing, is a lot more important than a lot more important than we seem to provide support to it. Not so in many so in many ways the, the argument is has been made for the one that's the most obvious, but that the the link to education and the quality of life and the ability to to lead successful, productive lives hasn't been brought forward. As, as hasn't been acted on. It hasn't enough. been acted on. Well, not enough as we could. I mean, we have a, we have a public education system in, uh, in Canada. Uh, it's huge. It, it, it generates, uh, consumes billions of dollars a, a year. It's required for every Canadian child, or some kind of home schooling is required. Uh, so it's not to say we don't do it. We could do better. We could do more. And uh, I think the importance of education and the importance of not just knowing, but knowing how, learning how to learn, is becoming increasingly evident. Uh, you know, we, we are in the knowledge age, so what you know is less important than you know how to know. Okay. So this, those lifelong learning skills. Well, I think that actually leads into, into my next question about leadership. Earlier uh, in this interview, you talked about Canada being a world leader in e-learning and in distance learning, and that we may not be that leader anymore. But I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your opinions about leadership and what kind of leadership is required in order to facilitate the growth of le lifelong learning, but also the, the use of evidence and, and the, the processes and the supports around knowledge mobilization? Well, you know, rather than leadership, I'd rather use the term partnership, because I think it, it takes the collective will of groups of individuals from different factions to make, to make innovation take hold. So I think, I think we've tried to realize that we only bring a certain type of expertise to the mix. And I talked before about the distinction between scholarly wisdom and practical expertise. But, you know, there are, in, in any innovation, you need more than what the academy can offer alone. Right. You need the ability, you need the, the mechanism to transmit that expertise to willing participants. So it's not a matter of, it, it, I think the, the word leadership implies too much a solitary act, emphasize collaborative actions, co-action. Do we have the system or do we have the environment that supports that collective action? And if we do, can you describe it? And if we don't, how do we build it? Well, I, you know, I, I really only can talk with what's happening in education. Okay. And I think that for too long, the separation between the university as the place where professionals were educated, as a place where research on education was conducted, and then the ministry and school board and school communities, there has been 
too big a gap between those two communities. We need to find ways to build bridges. There's a lot of resistance to change. You know, change is hard, change is difficult, change may not lead to success. The evidence that we generate from the academy also is not the type of evidence that um, may be most useful to educators because we have these gaps about scalability and sustainability and usability that are pretty important. So the evidence is not of the form, of the scope, of the quality, of the comprehensiveness that we should have. On the other hand, we don't have people who understand it well, who know how to translate it well, who can make adaptations on the fly to using it. We don't have a culture of evidence-based practice. There's many, 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 many things uh, lacking. So rather than a collaboration at times, we have a confrontation. What we're learning about the process of change or the process of innovation is that it's not a one-shot that you can go in and, and, and provide access to readily usable tools that, that do important things because the evidence says these are important things, but then you've got to keep at it. So it's a relationship. Oh, absolutely, and it's a long-term relationship. It's a long-term, and so you've got to build, tr you have to build awareness you have to build trust, you have to build confidence, and you've got to be there. So how do you build that trust? How do you build those long-term relationships? If, you know, I think I've heard this from other people in the academy that, you know, the imperative to publish in, in peer-reviewed journals takes up so much of their time that they can't afford to get involved for five years, ten years, twenty years, however long it takes to maintain that relationship. It's a cost, there's no question about it, and yeah. not everybody is, is prepared or in a position where they can fully give... Um, can you think of some incentives that you know could be implemented by say a knowledge center or by a, 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 a university department that would allow people to develop those longer-term relationships? First of all I think what we're seeing is that the granting agencies themselves federally and provincially are beginning to recognize financially support attempts at uh, knowledge transfer and mobilization. So there are uh, efforts being being made and funds being made available to, to do that. I'm not quite sure to what extent the, those attempts at knowledge mobilizations are, are truly valued yet by the academy. Okay. Um, and if you look at things like collective agreements, it's, it's still fairly traditional definitions of scholarship that hold strongest uh, sway. I think we, we also have an attitude issue, and I've come back to what I said a while ago about the scholarship of knowledge generalization or, or knowledge mobilization. Until we value, as an academy, knowledge mobilization as scholarship, we're going to continue to have a problem. Okay. Uh, that it, it's not, we can't just narrowly define scholarship in terms of the generation of new ideas, but it's the translation of those ideas and the tremendous intellectual challenge that's involved in the generation, in the translation of those ideas into practice. And what we can't do, dummying down, taking complex phenomena and trying to make them overly simplified, dumbing them down. I think that's disrespectful to the knowledge, <laughs> right? and it's disrespectful to the and unrealistic of the end user. So it's taking 
complex phenomenon in all of their richness and conveying that powerfully, clearly, succinctly, but not in an overly simplified way. That's a very difficult, very difficult thing to do. And I think, you know, the knocks against academics who write in technical jargon, they often do that because they have to write quickly, they don't fully understand the phenomenon, that really good academic writing is very powerful and clear. And that's the kind of writing that we have to use when we write for a policy-making and practitioner. We have to understand the audience, how to communicate well to them, but that doesn't mean oversimplify or treat them um, as dummies. And it seems to be that, that the practical applications that you were talking about in terms of your tools are almost, you know, th there's the analogy that uh, Mark Renault, the former president of the Social Science uh, Humanities Research Council, used to talk at industry that he would meet with the heads of the, the um, research councils and, you know, from CIHR, they, you know, shake a bottle of pills and go, you know, here's the results of our, our research. And uh, from NSERC, they would pull out a cell phone and go, you know, here's the results of our research. And so the social sciences don't have those kind of easily identifiable icons of the product that they produce. But, I mean, in some ways, what you're talking about is that the product is the people and the tools and the environments that they work in. Well, and I think, you know, when you look at, at the analyses that Stats Canada has done about the link between uh, education or literacy and, and right. GDP, so we could put a stack of dollar bills up on the table. We've been, we've been hidden in the ivory tower too long. Pure research, natural sciences, the health sciences, or the social sciences. There's tremendous value in research for research's sake without application, and I wouldn't want to risk that form of inquiry. But to have other types of research which address areas of, of need. Of course, I focus on education and the areas we have in, in there, but there are other many other areas of, of social import that we could target and then we could make our goal not just understanding but application and improvement. So we can say, yeah, you know, you gave us $10 million and we did X. So many people who were homeless and now we have less because of right. these programs that we designed. We've been talking, you and I, about knowledge mobilization for about five years now from my, my previous life. There has been movement, there has been progress, and, and you know we've, we've both seen it, both in terms of, of changes of attitude. There's still a long way to go. You have a crystal ball, of, like all good academics. I mean, in 10 years, where do you see the, the field of, of knowledge exchange in the process of supporting lifelong learning? Where do you see that? Very hard to answer. I think I've spent the last hour, hour telling you where I want it to go, right? where it will go. I'm very sad to say that I don't have a clue, and I think that that's uh, that is a profoundly disturbing answer. I think that we've covered, I mean, pretty much the range of all of the questions that is I. Is it coffee time? Yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty close <laughs> to coffee time. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to add. Uh, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> hi, dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> it's a pleasure as always. Yeah.